Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Dakova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hi, everybody. It's Doc from the John Freaking Mirpod, and I want to let you know about our new website on WordPress. Take a few minutes and check it out. You'll be able to find pictures of the pod's guests, links to the podcast and social media accounts, ways to support the pod, how to get in touch, and our entire back catalog is there, including episode summaries. Miss these sections of the JMT episodes? You can find them there. Missed a Triple Crowner episode? Yep, that's there too. World travelers, adventure athletes, polar explorers, Barkley Marathon competitors, authors, filmmakers, documentarians, and more are waiting for you. Take a look at the new website, and just a reminder, adventure lives here. At the Barkley, success is about overreaching our abilities and living to tell about it. Sometimes, success is getting your ass out alive. Lazarus Lake. Uh, well, the first time I did it, I got all the books, and so I did the entire loop, so I got the entire experience. The second time I did it, like I said, I got hypothermia, uh, and uh, there was like this crazy fog where you couldn't even see like your hand, and uh, it was just super dangerous, and so... Like I ended up in a cave, like shivering and hyperthermic and was like, that's the other thing. They don't come get you. You don't like shoot up a flare. Like nobody is going to ever come find you. And so like, if you can't get yourself out, then, um, yeah, you're just stuck. So, 
you, you have to, you have to self extract. And so like, I knew that I was at the point where I needed to go back or else I was going to be in big trouble. I'm doc. And this is the John freaking mirror pod. Welcome to the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Lace up those boots and sling on the pack for a romp through trails, short and long. With your host and renaissance man, Doc, it's time to embrace the suck. Welcome to a brand new season of the John Freakin' Muir Pod. This season, we are going to continue to talk about gear, trail life, and adventures in all their forms and varieties. And hey, if you are enjoying the podcast, take just a minute and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not enjoying the pod, well, just go ahead and keep that to yourself. All right. I'm very excited about our guest for season two, episode one. He was named one of the 2020 Outsiders of the Year by Outside Magazine, in part for winning the Quarantine Backyard Ultra Race, which we will be talking about today. But that is just a minor detail on his endurance athletics resume. He has run lots and lots of marathons and ultra marathons. He's set FKTs on a number of trails, and he's run seven marathons on seven continents in seven days, twice. Welcome to the John Freakin' Muir Pod, Michael Wardian. Hey, man. It's so good to be on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You know, I checked my mailbox uh, right before dinner this evening, and lo and behold, there is the latest issue of Outside Magazine. And not only are you in the magazine, you're on the front cover. Pretty impressive. (laughs) Thanks. Well, I'm sharing the front cover with a bunch of other awesome people, but thank you very much. Yeah, it's it's a real uh, honor to be be included. There's a a very high caliber of people. I think my my wife and kids favorite is, of course, the uh, dog in the lower left hand corner. So um, uh, they're, uh, they're quite funny. And uh, I think it's Mabel and Olive. And if you haven't uh, checked them out yet, uh, I highly recommend like stopping this now and going and checking them out and then coming back to the podcast because it will make your day better for sure. Okay, we will pause right now. Go hit the pause <laughs> button and go, go check out Mabel and Olive and then come back to us. We'll wait for you. Go ahead. Yeah. All right. Hey, welcome back. Um, so one of, the, one of the new features we're going to try this season is kind of the must-bring gear review. So I know you, your world centers a lot around running, endurance running, endurance uh, events. What is your must-bring piece of gear and why? And is there a particular brand of that gear that you prefer? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird. Like I'm pretty uh, lucky to have a bunch of sponsors. So I feel like there's uh, a ton of different, uh, answers to this question. I'd say, you know, you need shoes for what we do. (laughs) So I work with uh, Hoka One One and, uh, um, having a nice pair of, for me, it's the Evo Mafati. Um, it's their kind of, for me, it's like, like a Goldilocks shoe, it kind of does everything. Um, so that, that's kind of like the epitome of, of what I'm going to need on the trail. Um, and then, you know, if, if I am lucky enough to, um, you know, have something else, like I, I love having, um, I use some Comprasport calf sleeves. I feel like those really help, uh, especially in trail running um, for keeping my legs um, nice and 
nice and snug like uh but also it's just like a nice barrier for like getting thrashed on like your calves <laughs> so um it's one of those things my buddy in new zealand they go on these things called tramps which is basically just like a called it's a hike but like one of his things like every time he comes back from a long backpacking trip he always has uh never ever and so like one of the things is he's like never ever wear short socks and like I, that i took that to heart when he told me that um and I feel like that's something that I always try to do is I usually have uh, my comfort sport calf sleeves. Um, and then um, you said one thing, but like, I, I'm kind of going through like all my kit, but also like I, I use uh, Nathan hydration products. So like I always, even when I walk the dogs, I take my, my vest with me and I have like poop bags in one side and like the leashes in the other side. Uh, but every time I'm on a trail, I have, have a sack on so I can have some food and snacks and an emergency blanket and all that kind of crap. Fantastic. And I love the whole concept of the never evers. That's, that's uh, that might be a, a new tradition on the, on the podcast here as well. Yeah, it's really, it's super funny. It's uh, my buddy, his name's Carrie. He, he's, he's a super funny guy and, and he's, uh, he's taught me a lot over the years. All right. Hey, another regular feature we have on the pod is this thing called the pro tip insight of the week. And that comes at the end of the episode. And what will happen is I will turn to you at the, towards the end of the episode and I'll say, Hey, Michael, what is, what is your pro tip insight of the week for our listeners? And what is something that some kind of, you know, bit of advice, some insight, uh, a little tip that is going to help make their next adventure uh, that much more epic. So don't be surprised when I, when I turn to you and ask you that question at the end. Cool, man. I'll be ready. Okay. Very good. So we have a lot to talk about today and I'm really excited about this interview. So uh, can we start with maybe just some of the background on you kind of growing up? Where'd you grow up? I know you're on the East Coast now. Did you grow up on the East Coast? What was your family like growing up? And uh, you know, what, uh, what do you do for a career and what are your obsessions and interests? Yeah, man, I can, I can give you the whole rundown. So um I guess we should start and I'm based in Arlington, Virginia, which is about 10 kilometers from the Washington Monument in Washington, DC. I'm a professional marathon and ultra marathon runner, but I was not a runner growing up. I played a sport called lacrosse where you kind of run around and hit people and throw a ball into a net. And um, yeah, I played that uh, from when I was like eight years old all the way until I was um, like a senior in or junior in, um, at Michigan state university. Um, so I played at a, you know, a pretty high level division one lacrosse. Um, that was kind of my life. Um, hey, you run around went to lacrosse, school. you, you run around and hit people with sticks with us, you know, they, 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 you batter each other pretty well, I think. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a great sport. I, I, I still am super passionate about it. I love watching it. Um, I always like, you know, kind of throw out there that I want to get back into playing, you know, even in my forties, like, I think it'd be fun to play in like a, you know, over 40 league or something, or even like just a regular men's league and, and get out there and run around. Um, and so I stopped playing to um, basically, you know, have a, a senior year without the, the, the grind of a division one program where you're, you know, training four or five hours a day. Um, had like the most incredible senior year, uh, got to go on spring break, which was kind of <laughs> one of the reasons that I decided not to play lacrosse is I was, uh, 
I decided I wanted to go to Key West rather than Baltimore uh, for spring break. And it worked out to be one of the best, you know, decisions I had made. And uh, I was also a fraternity boy. So I um, took advantage of that part of um, Michigan State. And then I was in a honors program there called the James Madison program. So I was uh, studying international relations. And when I graduated from Michigan State, I took a job as a secretary at an international ship brokerage um, based in Alexandria, Virginia. And I've been at that same job for 20, 24 years now. Um, and I graduated from secretary to um, broker to now just this year, I became a, a partner and owner of the business. So it's been pretty awesome to, you know, have stayed with the same company for that amount of time and, and worked my way up from the very bottom to, um, you know, one of the, one of the principals in the company. That's fantastic. I have a couple of follow-up questions. Uh, number one, what, which fraternity do you want to give a, a shout out to your fraternity brothers out there? Heck yeah, man. I was, uh, uh, in a fraternity called Pi Kappa Alpha, um, at Michigan state. They are known as the Pikes. Um, I feel like they might've gotten, um, moved kicked off campus from what I understand but it's been you know a long time since I've been there we were good boys but um you know I think it may have gotten a little rowdy um and then um I didn't give you much about my background growing up um well hang on before you before you go before you go further uh, before you go further another follow-up question is what is a ship broker what, what, what kind of business is that yeah so yeah so international ship broker so I work with um some U.S. flag, um, so uh, and foreign flag. So U.S. flag are are ships that are um, registered in the United States, and then foreign flag are basically anywhere else in the world. Um, and I work with those companies uh, sending humanitarian food aid cargo all over the world. So nobody really still knows what that means when I say that. But if you've ever saw a movie, uh, there was a, a movie called Captain Phillips a couple of years ago with Tom Hanks. Uh, there was a big ship on there called the Merck, Alabama, and that was that was one of my vessels. So, like, I was the person who helped contract some of the cargo that was on that ship. Uh, so it was actually <laughs> quite unfortunate uh, and quite a bit of work when uh, you know the Somali pirates actually hijacked the vessel. Um, so that's like if um, if your audience is is familiar with transportation, it's basically I'm in transportation. I set up uh and coordinate shipments of um humanitarian food aid going to places like if you've ever seen like there's um uh just this year actually one of the partners we work with a private voluntary relief organization called the world food program just won the nobel peace prize um for the work that they do in in helping with humanitarian crisis um so those are the type of people we work with like the world food program world vision catholic relief services um, food for the hungry, save the children. Um, so those, those type of, um, uh, private voluntary relief organizations that are doing kind of this really incredible work all around the world. And, and we're helping, um, through the U S department of agriculture and the U S agency for international development to facilitate the movement of those cargos from U S farmers to places all over the world. That is really impressive. And, and so many of the folks that I talk to on this podcast uh, are involved with a variety of philanthropic and humanitarian causes and are just doing incredible things out there. I'm, 
uh, really pleased to hear about your, your uh, work in that field as well. So thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's, it's definitely, I'm just a small cog in the wheel for sure. Um, so a lot of, <laughs> a lot of people are doing great work and, um, you know, we're, we're representing the owners of the vessels. And so, you know, we're definitely, um, you know, for-profit uh, company, but like we are, uh, you know, helping um, facil facilitate a lot of the missions that are, are being um, set up and, and organized by these play people around the world. So it's, yeah, it's pretty awesome. And what I love about it is, you know, you deal with people all over the world. So we have clients in Singapore and Denmark and, you know, all over Africa and, and Europe and the chance to, um, you know, to work with those people and then people in the United States is, is, is really kind of what I'm interested in. And then, you know, kind of tying that into, you know, my running and, and getting a chance to explore the world in that way is, is a great way to, you know, be engaged. Right. I cut you off. You're going to tell us a little bit more about your family. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, I have, um, two siblings. I have a younger brother who's two years younger and then a, a baby sister who's, um, now she's, she's not so little anymore, but she's, uh, she's eight years younger. So, you know, it's kind of a big gap between my brother and I, and, and then our little sister. And, um, what's, what's been so neat is to see them kind of grow and, and, um, each have their own, um, amazing talents and, and the opportunity to like run with them has been incredible. You know, I got into running and then my brother got into running and then my sister kind of picked it up and, you know, we've, we've been able to kind of explore the world, um, you know, through my running and, and then also like now um, through what they're doing. So that's been really cool to see. Nice. Nice. Now you said that you were a lacrosse player and you didn't grow up to be, you, you when you grew up, you were not a, a runner when you were younger. Uh, how did, yep. how did you get into endurance running and, and marathons and ultras? Yeah, it's actually a, a story I've told a few times, but it's, it's pretty, um, uh, I have a pretty seminal moment. I was, um, as I said, I was in the Pike Kappa Alpha fraternity and my buddy Vince Boyson um, took me home one year for Easter and his mom had just finished the Boston marathon and her name is Vicki Voison, and she had just, um, just finished and <clears throat> we were having Easter dinner and she, um, she pulled out her like little unicorn medal and, um, her like crinkly space blanket she had from the race. And, um, it was the first time that I had ever met a real person that had run a marathon, like not somebody you see on TV that looks like you know, a runner, but like just a normal, like she's super fit, but like, just, she looked like it was my, my friend's mom. And it was like, Oh, this is like completely something that's possible uh, for regular people. And I was like, I'm going to do a marathon. And I remember like we were sitting at, um, you know, Easter dinner and, and I told his parents I was going to run a marathon. And his mom was like the coolest lady. She totally just, um, was like, how can I help you? And she, um, sent me a packet and it was basically like how to run your first marathon packet. And I still have it actually. It's pretty, pretty funny, but it, you know, it was just like, a, you know, I coach people now, um, for, um, you know, many years I have and, and like, it's still, it's still a good program, but it was just like, she took something in a book and just put it on the photocopier and then sent it to me. And, and just, 
I just did whatever it told me. If it said run six miles on Tuesday, I'd run six miles on Tuesday. And if it said run eight miles and there was a snowstorm in Michigan, I was going to run eight miles. And, um, and I did that and I didn't realize you actually had to qualify for the Boston marathon because I wasn't going to do any marathon. I was going to do the Boston marathon. And so, um, when I sent them, you know, my self-addressed stamped envelope saying like, Hey, I want to run your marathon. They said like, what's your qualifying time? And I was like, I don't have a qualifying time. And so then I figured out I had to run another marathon. So I signed up for the Marine Corps marathon in 1996. Um, just hoping to run fast enough to qualify for Boston. And I figured the good thing about doing the Marine Corps marathon was I just graduated from college and, um, my, it wasn't very far from my house. It was, you know, my, I was staying with my parents, I think in Oakton at that time, which is maybe 10 miles from the starting line. And so I figured if, you know, I dropped out or got sick or, you know, didn't make it that they could just pick me up and it wouldn't be far to get home. And, um, and I qualified for Boston. I ran, I think 306 or 308 and I had to run three hours and 10 minutes and, um, qualified for Boston, sent in my application and I figured, oh, sweet, I'll be done. You know, after I run Boston, you know, goal accomplished and, um, Check little did I know that, be done. yeah, exactly. Little did I know that I would be absolutely smitten by the atmosphere of Boston and, um, also Marine Corps, like it was just, you know, it was like, wow, this is really cool. Like, I feel like this is something I really enjoy. And, um, I decided to try to break three hours for the marathon because I heard from some people like, you know, that would be a really good, you know, lifetime achievement. And so I ran two hours and 54 minutes at Boston and, um, it was my first sub three and my second marathon. And, <clears throat> and then I kind of thought I was like, I thought, I, <laughs> I thought I was really fast and good. And so I went in the local running store and uh, called Pacers and I was like, Hey, you know, I'm really fast. Like, can I get on your like racing team? And of course, like they were like, no, you're not really fast. <laughs> you're not, you're not that good at all. But like, they were, they were kind and, and said like, Hey, we have track workouts on Tuesday nights. Why don't you come to the track and you can start working with the group. And like, if you get faster, you know, we'll put you on the team. And I was like, okay, fine. And I just started showing up at the practices and uh, within six months, like I was like, Hey, I, I feel like I could be on the team now. And, you know, I started out in the slowest group and worked up to the next fastest. And um, eventually I heard about a race that all the guys from the team were going to, they didn't invite me, but I just overheard them talking about it. It was called the Wawa 10 miler. <clears throat> so I showed up, showed up at the race, uh, with my dad and, um, I told him I was going to make the team and he was like, yeah, whatever, but like, okay. And so the race started and, you know, I was like, not with the, the guys in the lead. And then, you know, as the race got longer, like I started, I caught like one of the guys and I caught another one of the guys. And I think by the end I was like second or third and, and they were finished and I crossed the line and, um, my friend, Jeff Fran Horn, I think maybe ended up winning the race. And it's funny because he owns like a store now and I've gone and done some talks for him. And he's like, I think we like asked you on the team then. And I was like, yeah, that was my whole goal. Like, I just wanted to be on the team. And he's like, he's like, yeah, he's like, yeah, you can be on the team. And I was like, okay, cool. Thanks. Like, um, but it was, um, you know, kind of the first team I qualified for and, 
you know, from there, I just wanted to be the best on the team. And um, I actually ran for Pacers for, um, I think, until 2003 or so. Um, and then eventually I started picking up, you know, some bigger sponsors, Marathon Guide. And, um, and then, you know, from there, I was doing like lots and lots of marathons. I ran in 1997 when I ran Boston. I ran uh, Chicago Marine Corps and New York city. Cause I figured I'd just do all the biggest races. Um, and then I'd be done. <clears throat> and of course, like each one, I got better and faster. And then I heard about a race called the JFK 50 miler. Um, and I just didn't believe them when they told me that you could actually run that far. I was just like straight up was just like, no, that's not true. <laughs> and then they're like, Oh yeah, no, you can um and I, I still was like that was um, a guy named scotty mills who is the race director for the san diego 100 miler and a bunch of races out in that part of the world and he always used to own a store here in in i think springfield called fleet feet and um yeah i just didn't believe them and so then i actually thought i was going to win the race because i figured if you just take your marathon time and you just multiply it by two like that's what time you'll run for 50 miles, not realizing that you have to eat and like do all the things that come with running 50 miles. And so, um, yeah, I, I ran the JFK 50 miler and I finished, but I did not win. <laughs> I ran like, well, well, well over the winners. Um, and it's actually funny, a guy named Howard Nippard won the year that I did my first JFK and, uh, he and I shared, um, shared running on the 100k world team together for a bunch of years and uh, we're on the u.s ultra mountain trail committee now and um but i still remember him him going out and running so fast and thinking like there's no way that that guy can hold the pace for that long and of course he did and um and then you know in 2007 i actually ended up winning the race and almost breaking the course record that he had set and uh, and then the following year I did break the course record, but I got second to another guy that had run faster by like two minutes. So, so Michael, the, yeah. when, you, when you set the record for the, for the 50 miler, the JFK, what, what pace, what mile pace, uh, did you, did you have? Uh, I think it was a little over six minutes per mile for 50 miles. That is insanity. I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to repeat back to you what you said earlier. That's impossible. There's, there's yeah, no way it, that, that's nuts. <laughs> Yeah, it was actually funny because it was only like a week or so after the 2007 Olympic trials in New York City. And, um, you know, I was feeling pretty fit and I hadn't run a, a, you know, a 50 miler in a while. And I was really lucky. I'm friends with the race director, a guy named Mike Spindler. And he was like, hey, man, no pressure. But if you want to come to the race, you know, it's a great way to get on the, you know, the 100K world team. And, um, you know, my goal was to try to, you know, make the Olympic team for the marathon. And, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't make it. <laughs> I did leave the, the, the trials for 10 kilometers, um, in 2007 in New York. And I, I feel like that was probably one of my highlights in my career is like being in front of like Ryan Hall and Meb and, uh, all these like famous Olympians. Um, you know, I, <laughs> it was short lived, but you know, it was at one point I was like, Oh dude, I'm going to the Olympics. This is it, man. This is awesome. And, and then of course, like, they passed me and I, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't go, but it it was, uh, it was super fun to, you know, be out there for a little bit. No, I I've run a marathon three times and uh, nowhere near your times, but I, I finished all three and, and felt pretty good about myself. 
And I know yeah. that there is, uh, you know, so there's some caloric intake that, that needs to occur in a marathon. So you don't bonk and hit the wall and, and just go, run out of energy. What, how, how many calories do you have to consume running 50 miles uh, and doing six minute miles? And how does that, how does that take place? Um, yeah, it's actually not as much as you think. So like a lot of people say like 300 calories an hour, um, for 50 miles, I kind of go kind of what I do for a marathon, which is basically, um, I work with goo. So it's like one goo every four miles for a marathon, uh, okay. for a 50 miler, I might do a little bit more, but it, but it's, um, so, you know, if you're running six minute pace, that's like every 25 minutes or so. Um, so it's like 200 calories an hour plus whatever you're drinking. Most of the time I just drink water or some kind of like caloric mix. Um, so yeah, if you can get into, usually that keeps you from like getting a little bit of bad stomach. Um, but you're not out there for that long, really. I mean, it sounds like a long time until you've run like 24 hours or 48 hours or you know, 62 hours. Um, but you know, you're, you are moving pretty fast. And so like, I feel like for 50 miles, unless it's, you know, JFK is not a super hilly mountainous race. Like if you're in a really mountainous race or like have a lot of altitude or something, you may have to change up the nutrition a bit. Um, but if it's pretty flat or, um, you know, lower elevation and, and not kind of as extreme, like, the the gels work really well or the goos work really well for me got it got it and from from your comments right there i'm assuming that the the jfk 50 is not your longest race that you've run we've talked to some folks uh, on the pod that have told us about the the moab uh 200 or, or 200, yeah. 240 the moab 240 and the bigfoot uh trail race have you, yeah. have you competed in either of those or what, what's been your longest distance race that you've competed in? Uh, I've done a couple of longer races. I did a race that was kind of uh, pretty challenging in, in China called the Ultra Gobi. It was 400 kilometers, which is <clears throat> about, about 240 miles. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah uh, about, right? Yeah, yeah. Yep. I think that's right. Uh, and then that one was a little interesting cause it was self-sufficient. Uh, and then you had little checkpoints or like life stations and, but it was also self-navigation. So you kind of just had like a compass thing you had to hold and you had to just follow this like line. And of course there was not a topo map or anything. So you just like run into mountains and like be like, Oh sweet. Now I have to go like five miles out of the way to go around this thing or, you know, or yeah, whatever, like. Yeah, it was, it was pretty challenging. Um, but the longest race, it was actually this year when I did the quarantine backyard ultra, um, I did, um, 262 miles in, uh, 63 hours. So uh, that race is a little interesting for people in your audience that don't know. You basically run 4.167 miles every hour on the hour until everyone continues, uh, to drop out until there's just one person left. And so, um, you know, the, it's, it's a pretty cool race because you don't have to really go super fast, but you have to go kind of fast enough where you can uh, recover a little bit to be able to get started again. And, and every hour you have to start moving. So every hour on the hour, you have to run, uh, the four miles until you can't do it anymore. Right. And it was, it was something like 4.167 miles, something like that. 
Yeah, so it's, it's kind of interesting, 4.167 miles. Uh, so every 24 hours, you go 100 miles. So uh, every 24 ask, hours, you go. I was going to ask yeah. how, how that, why that unique number. Uh, yeah, wow. yeah. So basically every, every 24 hours, you do 100 miles. Okay. And they called it the backyard ultra. I was going to plan on getting this to a little bit, a little bit later, but this is fine. We can cover it right now. Cause it's just fascinating. They called it the quarantine backyard ultra. Does that mean that you, you literally ran it in your backyard? You just did laps around your backyard or is this in, in your community? You kind of uh, just ran, ran a route in your community. Yeah. So it's actually named after a guy named Laz, uh, Lazarus Lake, uh, who's the, uh, for people in your audience that don't know, he's the founder of a race called the Barclays Marathons. Uh, it's kind of this kind of ridiculous race that I've done a couple of times in Tennessee where you kind of run around in the woods and they don't, don't tell you what the course is and you have to like navigate and it's always bad weather and all that kind of stuff. Oh, wait a um, second. But he, wait, wait it a is second, actually Michael. in his backyard. Hang, hang on one second because as my audience uh, knows, I am, I am obsessed with the Barkley marathons. I've been trying to get somebody on the pod who has run the Barkley and, and lo and behold, here you are. So thank you very much. Congratulations. I would love it if we could take a, a side trip, maybe, maybe the next segment, we could take a side trip down uh, the Barkley marathon path and, and just have you share a little bit of your experience uh, in that. Cause that is, I, I am hooked and obsessed on the Barkley marathons. Yeah, I'm happy to let you know as much as I can for sure. Um, yeah, it's it's a pretty incredible experience. Like, um, it's one, it's a culture around it. There's like a whole community around it. It's um, it's well deserved. It's it's a really cool, um, unique challenge, uh, and it's it's a opportunity for growth, which is what I love. Right? I mean, it's a chance to evolve as a person and an athlete and it challenges you on a lot of different levels. And um, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where, and it's, it's very equitable. I mean, if you put the time and energy in, like it's something that um, <clears throat> is just uh, at the point of being achievable. And for most people it's unachievable. So it's, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. It's, it's a, it's a really great. Um, yeah. It's a really great event and it's well designed and, and it's very challenging. Um but back to the quarantine, uh, the, um, yeah, the, the founder of the Barclays marathon, uh, the, he came up with the concept of running, you know, the 4.67 miles and it is literally around his backyard in Tennessee. Um, so like, uh, it's, it, I think where he takes his dogs for a walk through the woods and, um, and so, yeah, you basically run around his backyard. And that's how it started. The quarantine backyard ultra was um, uh, April 4th of this year. So like kind of at the beginning of quarantine and it was, um, it was a race that we were doing all virtually. So we had to sign into zoom every hour on the hour and just show that we were there. Um, and I did it around a 0.4 mile loop. So I ran 262 miles on a 0.4 mile loop around a block of my neighborhood. So yeah, I just ran the same loop for three days, basically. How many loops is that? Uh, it was thousands of loops. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was, well, I don't know. It was he's, got, he's got the calculator out. He's going to throw out of my, I don't know. 
No, it wasn't. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was uh, 655 loops, I guess. 655 loops. I guess the, the good, good thing was you're always close to your bathroom. Uh, yes, that was good for sure. Um, the only problem is like I live a little bit down a hill. And so like um, that was not as good. Um, but yes, um, that, that was nice. And also for the first day, like I kind of was you know, less supported, but then my wife saw like how much help I needed. And she like rallied the troops and the whole neighborhood came out and supported me. It was really incredible. It really brought us together, which was cool. Fantastic. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back from the break, we're going to get a little more depth into uh, the Barkley marathons and hear what Michael has to share with us on that. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Michael Wardian, professional marathon and ultra marathon runner. And you're listening to the John freaking Muir podcast. And welcome back. We're talking with Michael Wardian, and we're going to get a little bit into the Barkley Marathons. I've watched a couple of documentaries that really whet my appetite on this subject. And to give you some insight into the Barkley Marathons, let me just tell you the names of the two documentaries that I've watched. The first one was The Race That Eats Its Young, and the second one was Where Dreams Go to Die. So that should tell you a little (laughs) bit about what the Barkley Marathons is all about. And as soon as you said Lazarus Lake, when we were talking about the Backyard Ultra, I, I recognize that name. He is the creator of the Barclays. And I've been fascinated ever since I saw that first documentary. So I'm, I'm glad that I'm, I'm really excited to have somebody on who's gone through the application process, who was accepted into the race and had a chance to, to see that course and experience it firsthand. I'd love to hear all about your Barclay Marathon experiences, Michael. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to share. Um, Yeah, so I did the race, I think, in uh, maybe 17 and 18 or 16 and 17. Um, And yeah, it's it's kind of a, there's no, I guess there's no, there's no application per se, like you have to find somebody that's willing to kind of share how it works with you. And then you have to apply at a certain time on a certain date, um, in a certain way. Um, and that, then, sounds, that sounds pretty secretive. Yeah, it's totally, it's totally, um, yeah, it's totally this whole thing. It's like, a, it's a whole, procedure I guess and then you know if you are accepted you um you get a a, a, a letter of condolence saying like hey I'm sorry you made it um and then you don't know really when the race is going to start you know kind of when it usually starts but then um so you just kind of have to be ready for it to start and then once you get there it can start anywhere between Friday and Saturday usually, but doesn't, you don't really know. So like, you just have to be ready to start and then you got to know that you're going to be running. And so just for your audience that doesn't know, so it's, it's, um, 
five 20 mile loops around a park in Tennessee called frozen head state park. And it's just, it's not like the great smoky mountains or like Arcadia or anything else. It's like a state park by your house that, you know, you would just go to on the regular. Like I go to a park around here called great falls and uh, windy run state like park by my house or like, it's not even as big as like Shenandoah National Park, which is like by my house. And it's a big park, like where the Appalachian Trail goes through it. This is just like just an awesome little place in, in the country. And um, it's famous for a prison there. I think it's Bushy Mount Prison or something like that. And the race basically started and, it, you know, if your audience wants to, you know, the, the, both those documentaries that you reference are pretty awesome. They do a good job of explaining the race, but um, the race started because uh, Lazarus Lake, he was kind of an ultra runner and uh, he was kind of joking with his friend about um, this guy that escaped and he only made it like a mile in the woods. And he's like, I can make it a hundred miles in 24 hours or something. And, or in 60 hours, the guy was out for 60 hours and made it like two miles or something. And he was like, I can make it a hundred miles. And so then he came up with a race in the woods uh, where this guy was trying to escape from prison. And so the race kind of just goes around the park. Um, and the thing that makes it unique is, you know, once you get there, you don't know when it's going to start. Um, the weather is usually crappy. Um, there's no, Oh, it's not marked. So you, you get a map where these little books are in the woods. Uh, and, you know, tell, there's anywhere, tell us about those books. What, know, is the, what is the purpose to, of those uh, books out in the woods? Yeah, I was going to get to that. So yeah, so you, you're, you get a map and then you have to transpose the map onto your map of the park. And then um, once you figure out uh, when the race is going to start, you head off into the woods um, and you try to find these books. And the books are basically like checkpoints. Um, so you get a bib and, you know, your bib might be 39 and mine might be 52. And so when you get to the book, when you find it under a tree or under a log or, um, you know, buried under the seventh flagstone from the highest point next to the laurel of the valley, um, you open the book and you tear out the page that has your number. So, you know, mine might be 52. So I tear out page 52 and that's how you show Laz, uh, when you get back to the big yellow gate, which is the start and finish of each loop, uh, that you went to all the books. Uh, and so you, you have 12 hours to do one loop and you have to do all five loops in less than 60 hours. And it sounds super easy to go 20 miles uh, in 12 hours. Like you're barely going like two miles an hour, right? Like it doesn't, shouldn't be hard at all. Um, but you're also dealing with like, I think each loop is more like 30 miles and it has like almost 10,000 feet of elevation gain each loop. Um, so it's pretty like it just doing one loop like I still haven't done a single loop in the time limit, but like just doing one loop, I was like, wow, that was, that was legit. Uh, even if it was like marked and you're not like backtracking and actually doing more cause you're not like going the right way or uh, you're off course or um, you know, someone thinks they know where the book is and they actually don't know where the book is. Um, so there's a lot of wasted time. And then once you leave the 
the campground where the race starts, there's no aid. So you have to carry all the food you're going to use for 12 hours and water. And there's like two water stops along the course. Um, so like, yeah, it's basically like self-sufficiency uh, with route finding with like just being a badass like run in general. Yeah. You, you, as you started to describe it, you know, just being in a, a, a state park and, you know, just like one, one near, near you. I mean, that state park though is, is, is no joke. I mean, you talked about the elevation gain, you talked about the, the, uh, the woods. I mean, it, it looks treacherous. It, I think, I think the race has only had 13 or 14 finishers since its inception, which is just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. I think over 30 years they've had, I think 15 people finish the race and some Sometimes it's the same person, right? So it's like, I don't know if they've had 15 different people. Like, I think it might be more like 10 or 12 actually different people. Some people have finished it multiple times. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's legit tough. And actually what I didn't say and I should have said is it's not on the trails either. So it's off trail. So like, you're like bombing down like waterfalls and like jumping over like ravines and like, yeah, there's like some of it is on the trails, but most of it's like off trail. So it's also like Blair Witch Project. Like if people have ever seen that movie, it's yes. like you're just like going around and you're like, oh, that looks like that looks like the tree I was looking for. But it's really the tree you saw like 10 minutes ago because you're going the wrong way. Ouch. And then everything is like has a unique name that only applies to the race. So, you know, it'll be like go to I don't know weeping willow and like if you don't know what a weeping willow is then you have no idea where you're supposed to go so like it's it's I think it's it's it reminds me of like pledging a fraternity it's like you have no idea what's going on when you first get there and then the more you're there you're like oh I kind of see what those things mean and then you get a feel for actually what you need to do and then you actually have to have the skills to be able to do that so yeah, that's, it's, it's a bit tricky, um, but also awesome. So talk about the, uh, there, there's some unusual place names on the trail. Uh, one of the ones that looked really treacherous was this place called rat jaw. Did you experience rat jaw? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, actually. Yeah, you're, you're right. Yeah. So there's some very um, uh, famous parts of the, um, of the route. Uh, the probably the most famous and it's most famous probably because it's the one that they actually let media go to, but it's this really steep climb up like a power line. Um, and it like, it looks steep in the videos and stuff, but in real life, it's way steeper. Like, I don't know if you ever, <laughs> you ever like take a picture and you're like, that doesn't look steep at all. Um, or like when it does look steep and you're like, oh shit, that's actually really steep. Uh, that's what that that climb is like and then what makes it tricky too is like it's got briars um, all over it and the briars aren't as bad when we do the race or when I've done the race uh, in March but like they call it rat jaw because like you go by and it like snaps you and bite like takes chunks out of your skin uh, while you're going up the climb but again like the both times I did it the, the thorns weren't so bad but you know, most of the time they are bad. Um, so like, I didn't, I didn't get the full experience, which, you know, that's good <laughs> probably <laughs> like, um, but it was, yeah, it, it, it can be kind of a nasty climb. 
and especially if it's wet and slippy, like you just kind of slide down and it's, 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 it's definitely a big grunt up that hill. Well, if you, if you didn't get the worst of it, then you, you, you've got to go back. You've got to get the full experience, Michael. Yeah, I did get hypothermic and end up in a, in a cave for a couple of hours trying to get warm and then had to like a two and a half hour hike back to quit. So yeah, I got, I got a pretty good experience there um, for sure. Like, but yeah, I, I'd, I'd like to try to get around and um, you know, I'd, I'd like to get an official loop at some point and uh, you know, the goal would, you know, to be making around enough times to get a finish. Yeah, you but again, to it's it. kind of like it's on the edge of what like the very best people are doing. And, you know, I, I have a lot of work together. Now you mentioned a little bit earlier that, you know, it's supposed to be five 20 mile loops. It's the same same loop. You, you go different directions depending on which which, uh, you know, I think you, it alternates. Right. You go clockwise and counterclockwise until you get to the last. It depends. One. He, uh, no, he, uh, he changes it up actually. So it depends. So most of the time you're right. You go one direction and then the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the last time I did it, he had us go two, two, one, one. And then if you made it to the last one, you get to choose. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's kind of a, <laughs> add his fancy. And what seems, what's so weird about that is like, you're like, oh, it should be easy if you just turn around, but it's actually way harder uh, if you go you go one way and then you go back the other way because it's also, if you think about it, you have 12 hours. So if you do it in the day, then the next time you're doing it is at night. And then the next time you're doing it is at day. And you're just like, I, I, I don't know where I am right now and what this looks like because everything looks different at night. So yeah, it's, yeah, and that's it's kind of hard I was it makes say it harder is... to navigate. That's just what I was going to say. He, he, it seems very cruel that he does that because you're exactly right. You're, you're running one direction in the day and then you're running the, the same loop, right? But you're doing it now the other direction at night. And then it, it just uh, compounds the navigation <laughs> problems having to do that. That's just wild. Well, and not just that, like you just get tired and you start to make more mistakes. And, you know, if, if you, the, the, the race is generous in that, you know, if you're fit and you're ready and you, uh, have the ability to move pretty fast on that terrain. Like you have time to make a couple mistakes, but if you make too many mistakes, you just don't have enough time. And so that's, you know, where most people get into trouble is if you make a couple mistakes. Okay, cool. But then you're not moving fast enough or uh, you're moving. Like I was moving so fast that I would just miss stuff. And so like, uh, but I wasn't moving as fast as the really fast guys, you know? So I was in this like, weird zone where I was like too fast for the, or too slow for the really good navigators and fast guys, but like too fast for the people that could navigate really well, but maybe didn't have the ability to, to move as fast. And so like, it just sucked. Cause I'd get somewhere and I'd be like, I know the book is here somewhere. And then I wouldn't be able to find it for like 45 minutes or an hour. And then somebody that was moving a lot slower and using less energy to move would just come in and be like, Oh, I know where it is. And just go over and grab it. And I'd be like, Oh sh- crap, you know? And, like, um, so yeah, so it's, it's like this, this really hard balance because you, you need to move fast enough to make the cutoff. Uh, but if you get careless, you make too many mistakes. So, you know, it's, right. it's, it's, it's awesome though, because like, if you keep going, you'll figure out where everything is. Right. So like, that's the trick too, is like the more you go and the more you explore the park and the more you, 
you work on your navigation and all the skills that you need, the better you get at it and the faster you can go. And so like, that's what I love about it is, you know, if you're willing to put the time and effort in and, and you have the ability, then, you know, you'll be able to, to move well. Right. And I, I think I, you said earlier, and I was getting to it, that uh, it's supposed to be five loops and a loop is supposed to be 20 miles, but it's, it's, kind of a given that it's not 20 miles, that it's, it's longer than 20 miles, closer to 30 miles, possibly. Um, how, how far did you get in each of your, your two races? How many miles of that, of that loop do you think? Uh, well, the first time I did it, I got all the books. And so I did the entire loop. So I got the entire experience. The second time I did it, like I said, I got hypothermia. Uh, um, and uh, there was like this crazy fog where you couldn't even see like your hand and yeah, it was just super dangerous. And so like, I ended up in a cave, like shivering and hyperthermic and was like, that's the other thing. They don't come get you. You don't like shoot up a flare. Like nobody is going to ever come find you. And so like, if you can't get yourself out, then, um, yeah, you're just stuck. So, uh, you, you have to, you have to self extract. And so like, I knew that I was at the point where I needed to go back or else I was, going to be in big trouble um so like i think that's what's cool too is you have to really you know own up and and know what your limitations are um and you know and act accordingly that's just insane um so you said you were there in 17 and 18 and i think the second documentary that i mentioned where dreams go to die that was the story of gary robbins and his attempt to finish the Barclays. Yes, I was there. In two that separate year. years. And yeah. I was going to ask, was that one of the years or both of the years that you were there? Yeah, I was there the year Gary was there. Uh, I, after I, you know, I, I got knocked out, I left before all the drama happened. Um, so like I drove home to get back to work because, um, yeah, I had to work. Um, but yeah, it's unfortunate. It was, it sucked, man. I was really hoping that he was going to get it. He's a buddy of mine and, um, he's an incredible athlete and, and for him to, um, you know, get that far and, and not have it, you know, end up the way that he wanted that, that was, that was pretty tragic. Yeah, absolutely heartbreaking. I don't want to spoil the ending for anybody, but I guess you can, you can guess from the title, you know, how it turns out, but he is a very intense guy. <laughs> he had a whole system of training that he put into place to, to conquer this race and the race is just a badass race that, uh, it, I mean, you're talking about, you were struggling on it. You're, you know, you're, you know, outside magazine called you perhaps the world's most prolific distance runner and you, you struggled with it. So I can't imagine, uh, you know, it's, it's obvious why there's only 15 finishers over the course of 30 years. Yeah, it's, 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 it's definitely next level stuff. Um, and, but I mean, it's achievable. So that's, what's cool about it. You know, a, a friend of mine named John Kelly has finished the race. Um, you know, he's, he's, um, he's just, you know, he's got a dad, he's a dad, he owns his own business. He's got three kids. Like um, he's an incredible athlete, but like, you know, he's a, he's a normal guy and, and just does extraordinary things. So like, it's, it's completely possible. Well, I want to thank you for sharing your experiences with the Barclays. I, I've longed to have somebody on here who was able to experience that firsthand and, and share that with us. So thank you very much. 
Yeah, and and I should like uh, say like it's 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 an, uh, a testament to the race too. Like Gary and um, the team that he has, um, Gary or Laz, you know, like uh, he. <laughs> It's Laz Lake, but it's Gary Cantrell. It's the same person, right? So it's like he's got a couple of different names, but like the race that he that he created and and you know inspired so many people, you know, like yourself, like it's got a following, and he's really um, been able to um, create a culture around it. And like once you're a part of that, like you're always a part of it, and so it's cool to like um, you know be a part be able to participate in that, but also to just kind of see the whole scene and, um, you know, everything that goes around about it. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty awesome. Like we didn't even say like some of the cool, like quirks too. It's like, um, you know, with the first time you go, you have to bring like a license plate from your home. Um, like if you're foreign, your home country, or, um, you know, for us, it's like a state license plate and, um, and then, you know, bring them like cigarettes and like different kinds of soda. And like, uh, he always has like something that he needs. Like he got one year, he asked for like plaid shirts. He's got like a million plaid shirts. He like wanted these like kind of socks that you can only find like that were out of stock everywhere. And I don't know. So like, there's a whole, there's a whole like thing around it. And, you know, it's, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, the race really has a cult following, and I wanted—I meant to ask you, what was the atmosphere like at uh, at that state park uh, during the race? And were there a lot of people uh, assembled to watch the race or to support people who were in the race? What was what was kind of the energy there? Actually, no. I mean, he actually keeps it pretty low key, so it's you know, I think you can bring a couple. Like, I think now it's maybe only one or two people to help you the entire time and um just because it is like a small area um and he wants to be respectful for the other people in the park and so like um it's it's crazy it's like one of the most popular biggest races in the world but it's got it's got a feel of like just a bunch of people going out bashing around in the woods and so like i think he wants to keep it that way and uh it's kind of like just a bunch of people hanging out and and um and, and really just kind of pushing their limits. And so it's pretty awesome. Like it's, you know, everyone's camping together, everyone's eating together, everyone's watching the runners come around and um, everyone's helping everyone else out. And um, it's, it's a community and, you know, uh, of people that, you know, want to see what their limits are. And um, you're gonna, you're definitely gonna find out. Um, and, uh, you know, it may not be where you think it is, um, but you will learn something about yourself. I can promise you that. And what did you learn about yourself? Uh, I learned that uh, I need to do way more work on navigation. Uh, I learned that I actually have the ability to um, take care of myself more than I thought I did. Um, I learned that I am not as skilled at off-terrain, like ridiculous, like uh, not seeing where you're putting your feet and just trusting that you're not going to hit a rock and, and end up careening down the side of a mountain and dying, uh, as some other people. Um, but I did realize like I can, I can move pretty good. And, um, you know, that, uh, I need to, you know, be more mindful of, uh, stuff around me. Um, and I learned that, um, if I want to do the race, I need to really put the time and effort in. And, and so like, until 
I can do that. You know, I want to give other people the opportunity to see what they learned. And, um, you know, I know as for me as an athlete, it was a, it was a really cool evolution. Like it really spurred me to do a lot of these fastest known times and stuff like that, because I was like, Hey, you know, I can go 12 hours without seeing anyone. Like, that's pretty awesome. And, you know, this year I did, you know, probably one of the most exciting things I've ever done. I did uh, like 110 miles completely solo. Like I started at one side of Shenandoah national park and yeah, I didn't see anyone to crew me. Like I took water and filtered water and, you know, kind of like, um, you know, just went out and had a, an adventure on my own. And, um, that's something I probably never would have done had I not done Barkley. And 110 miles across Shenandoah, Shenandoah how, how long did it take you? It took me like 36 hours. It was crazy, man. I thought it would be way less. Uh, but it takes a long time to like filter water and my pack was so heavy. Uh, yeah, it, like I, and I was like chafed like within like 10 miles. So like it was, it was a full on adventure. And then of course, like I ran out of water at the end. Like it was, it was, it was awesome though. Like I, it was probably one of the coolest things I've ever done right there you're you're verging on um what a through hiker experiences yeah. with the uh, chafe and the filtering and why is it taking so long you know and, and so that but that that is the fkt for that section of the appalachian trail correct uh it's the self-supported fkt so like there's a faster supported one for sure you could go way faster if you had people that were crewing you um because there was a lot of opportunity to get aid but like when you're carrying it all yourself like I did actually, so mine's not um, unsupported, mine's self-supported because like I did go into some of the camp stores and buy some food. Um, so yeah, that was, <laughs> that was something where I was like, oh, I got plenty of stuff. And then I was like, dude, I just want a soda so bad. So I just stopped and got one. And I was like, I don't care. <laughs> this well, tastes good. Quite an accomplishment. Congratulations. And back to the Barkley yeah, real thanks, quick. Bar- back to the Barkley real quick. Um, do you anticipate doing that again? Yeah, I think so. At some point I'd like to try it again. Like I, I think I want to really dedicate some serious training to it and, um, and give it a, a legit go. Um, and you know, I don't think it would be, uh, in the upcoming year, I think it'd, you know, be a couple of years from now. But I think the cool thing about that race is like, um, you don't have to move fast. You just have to move efficiently and you have to be strong. And so like, I think it's a race where you can do that, you know, at, you know, at any age, really, like there's people out there that are, um, you know, doing it, doing extremely well and, and kind of, you know, on the edge of what's possible. And, you know, that's, that's something where, you know, you just, if you can be a really efficient hiker, you can do super well at that race. And if we look very carefully, uh, in the documentary where dreams go to die, can we spot you anywhere in, in the footage somewhere? Um, I feel like there might be a cameo of me at some point. Like, I think if like maybe a check-in or something like there, there may be like a little shot of me. All right. I'm going to have to rewatch that. I'll be, I'll be looking for you. So let's go back to uh, your marathons and your ultras real quick. I wanted to ask how many marathons you've done since that first one in the uh, Marine Corps marathon, how many, how many marathons, what's your average time and what's your best finish in a marathon? Um, so my number of marathons, I think it's over 250 or something ridiculous. So I usually run like, um, 40 to 50 races a year. Um, I think last year I ran like 18 marathons or something. You know, you get a, you get quite a bump up when you do like seven and seven days. So like, that's kind of like a cheat code for, um, 
doing it. And I actually, last year I did 10 marathons in 10 days and set the world record for that. So like, um, yeah, you get, you get a kind of a bump in that. Um, as far as my best finish, I've won a bunch of marathons. So like, you know, I haven't won like the Boston marathon, but I've won like, um, like, yeah, some, the big Sur marathon a couple of times. I won the Kauai marathon. Uh, I've won the Shamrock marathon. I feel like, um, I won the national marathon and became the rock and roll DC marathon like seven times. Um, uh, my best, um, marathon time is two hours, 17 minutes, 49 seconds at the 2011 grandma's marathon. Wow. Um, and my average time, I'd say when I was winning most of those marathons was between, uh, 220 and 225, I'd say. So that, you know, that's kind of what I've been known for is like, I'd ran the Olympic trials in Houston in 2012 and 221. And then the next day ran the Houston marathon in 231. And so like, um, you know, I've, yeah, I've done stuff like that. Or like I, I won the San Antonio marathon and the next day won the Vegas marathon or actually I didn't win Vegas, but I was trying to win both the marathons back to back on the same day. So like I won the marathon in in San Antonio in the morning. And then that night I tried to win the marathon in Vegas. And I think I ended up like second or third or something. So, um, yeah, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's cool to be able to recover pretty quick and, um, and be able to do these things, you know, kind of back to back and, um, you know, at a pretty high level. That is pure beast mode. Now I, I know that you are married and you have a couple of kids and, in running these marathons, all these marathons, um, and there's training that goes on. I would imagine there's, there's daily, almost daily training that have to take place to, to stay in shape for, for these marathons. How do you, how do you keep a, how do you balance the running, the training, the events and family life? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a big question I get all the time. I mean, I think, um, for me, I, I call it like invisible training, but you know, what I started doing was I started trying to figure out like ways to be super efficient. So, uh, I used to work downtown, so I would uh, wake up and do a session in the morning of running and then I would run to work and then do uh, another session at lunch and then run or, or cycle home. And then, you know, once I got home, I'd just be with the kids. And so, um, that's, that's kind of like the, the way that I did a lot of my training was like, making a commute and doing it through, um, you know, somewhere I had to be anyhow. Um, and so the other thing was, you know, to incorporate the training with the kids. So when the kids were little, I had a jog stroller, um, and I would put the kids in the jog stroller and take them out and run with them. Um, so I just meet up with my normal training group and, um, be like, Hey, I have my kids with me, you know, keep it clean. <laughs> uh and then we'd go for a run fantastic uh, and Great you know i ended up even like yeah even like set a world record with my son pierce in the jog stroller we ran two hours 42 minutes and uh set a guinness world record and um and then with grant my younger son we ran almost 10 minutes faster and lost to another guy <laughs> So uh, I ran two hours, 32 minutes and uh, lost to a guy that ran like 231 uh, at the um, Route 66 marathon in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And 
actually he won the race and I was second. Uh, both of us pushing jog strollers. Wow. Incredible. Hey, yeah, we're gonna, it's cr- crazy. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to get to uh, a, a feat that I find pretty amazing. And that is the seven marathons in seven days and seven continents. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. I'm Lael Wilcox. I'm an ultra-endurance cyclist, and you're listening to the John Freaking Muir Pod. And welcome back. Talking to Michael Wardian. And one of the most incredible things that I saw in the Outside Magazine piece on you was the fact that you did seven marathons in seven days on seven continents twice. And that just seems impossible because, you know, continents are, are not necessarily uh, uh, that close to each other. There's a lot of travel time and logistics involved in getting from one continent to another. And then you factor in uh, running a marathon on seven consecutive days on seven, seven different continents. How, how is that even possible? Yeah, I mean, the first time I heard about this, um, it's called the World Marathon Challenge. I did it... Um, in 2017 and 2019 and um it's something that was set up by a guy guy named Richard Donovan he's a crazy Irish guy um I met him at the 2014 North Pole Marathon but I'd actually met him before in 2010 at the 50k World Championships in Galway Ireland and it was like one of those people where you like meet him and you're like I'm gonna be friends with this guy like he was just cool and like he really got it. And he was like a runner and, um, you know, we just stayed in touch. And so when, when I did the North pole marathon, I won that race. And, um, he said like, Hey, I have this idea of running seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. And I just did the same thing you did. I was like, that's kind of like when I heard that you could run 50 miles, I was like, you can't even get to all seven continents. Like I was a traveler, you know, up to that point, I'd been all over, um, and I was just like, I so want to do that. And he's like, yeah, it's like $50,000. And I was like, okay, I'll get back to you. And so like three years later, um, you know, there was an opening to do the race and, uh, I signed up and luckily enough, he had a spot for me and, uh, I ended up doing it, but basically how it works is you, um, fly to somewhere close to Antarctica. The first time I did it, we flew to Punta Arenas in Chile. Um, So it's kind of like on the tip of Chile. And then we flew over to Antarctica and we stayed at a little camp for a couple of days until the weather looked good. And then we ran the marathon and then we flew back to Punta Arenas, ran another marathon, flew from there to Miami, ran a marathon, flew from there to Madrid, ran a marathon, flew from there to Morocco, ran a marathon, flew from there to Dubai, ran a marathon. And then we finished in Sydney, Australia. The second time I did it, we flew to Cape Town in South Africa, flew over to Antarctica, ran a marathon, flew back to Cape Town, ran a marathon, flew to uh, Perth, Australia, ran a marathon, flew to Dubai, ran a marathon, flew to Madrid, ran a marathon, flew to um, Santiago, Chile, ran a marathon and finished in Miami. Um, so that was, that's basically how you do it. And, um, both times we flew on a private, uh, jet. Um, it's a different plane from 
uh, then wherever Cape Town or Punta Arenas to Antarctica. And then uh, once you get back to and you know Cape Town or um, Punta Arenas, we took kind of the same plane both times all around the world. And so it was pretty, pretty incredible um, experience. Like um, definitely one of my favorite things about running is the opportunity to kind of meet people. And uh, when you're on a trip like that, you get a real chance to connect with the people that you're racing with and against. And uh, each time it was around 50 uh, runners and then probably about five or 10 staff um, that were kind of moving around setting up the races for us. And each time we'd land, it was a very, um, very sh short course, like between two and three miles. And you just do that a couple times, you know, eight times, nine times until you're done and then get back on the plane as fast as you can and fly to the next place. Um, and you just keep doing that. Uh, and you kind of have no idea what time it is and what day you're on and, um, what continent you're on, but, uh, it's, it's really special because they actually partner with like local, um, running groups and committees in different places. So like in Australia, like they made us like a crazy, like, you know, Aussie breakfast with like eggs and, uh, pancakes and you know, bacon and like all this awesome stuff. And they had like signs up, like saying like kangaroos 2k that way. Um, but yeah, it's pretty awesome. It's like a once in a lifetime opportunity that I got to do twice in a lifetime. So I feel pretty fortunate to be, um, you know, to be one of the only people that's got to do it a couple of times. Fantastic. That, that's just, that's incredible. It's mind boggling. Uh, I, I was going to say you had to feel pretty loopy during those seven days and I wonder how much sleep you got. Uh, I think the first time I got less than 10 hours and the second time, I think it was, yeah, like 12 hours. Like I'm not a great sleeper in general. And so like, I kind of don't sleep uh, uh, most of the time. And yeah, like I think that's one of, you know, kind of a, a, a thing that I've been trying to work on getting better at, but it's, um, you know, it, it can be a benefit in, in an event like that, or um, like the race, like the quarantine backyard ultra where other people start to, you know, really get a little bit loopy. I'm just like, oh, let's keep going then. That's cool all right hey michael you know where we are right now we're we're uh, near the end we're near the end that's right we're at the time nice. we're, at, we're at the time of the episode where i turn to you and say michael what is your pro tip insight of the week what little tidbit of wisdom can you share with our listeners to make their next adventure that much more epic i think the pro epic tip that i can share is if uh if you have something you've been wanting to go do it because you never know um when your next opportunity is going to come or um i suffered my first uh real substantial injury uh, about eight weeks ago um my goal was to run across the country um and uh, you know a couple weeks ago i didn't know if i would ever be able to to run again and um you know, I, I wasn't able to get, um, the, the, the chance to run across the country this year, just because of everything going on. And, you know, I'm, I'm still hoping to do that next year, but, um, if there's something like a trail that you've wanted to explore, but you haven't done it, or you're waiting for the perfect time, don't go and do it now, go and, 
um, you know, sign up for, sign up for something, um, you know, go see that, you know, park that you wanted to see, go, um, you know, say, say to your friend that you've been wanting to, you know, meet and go for a kayak with like, Hey, let's do it this weekend. And, um, don't put off things that you've been wanting to do because you never know what's going to happen. And, um, you know, seize, seize the opportunity, um, because, you know, who knows what's going to happen. Um, and, uh, do it while you can. Um, don't, 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 don't say no to the chance. Um, so like, that's, that's what I hope people will do is, uh, if they get nothing else from this, um, go have that adventure that you've been wanting to do or, or, I mean, it doesn't even have to be something epic. You can just go 20 miles from your house, get dropped off and try to get home. Like you can, you know, it can just be something as simple as that. Like you don't have to go to Arcadia or, uh, Yosemite or Patagonia, like have an adventure, um, and do it sooner rather than later. Oh, that explains it. My wife has done that to me a couple of times. She's dropped me off <laughs> the miles from home and says, Hey, we'll see you later. And uh, yeah, that's what she was doing. She was trying to encourage my next adventure. Fantastic. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, that's great. So there you have it. That's it. Uh, season two, episode one is in the books. I hope our listeners enjoyed our time with Michael and I want to thank him for joining us this week. Michael, how can our listeners keep up with you on social media and where can they find updates on your latest adventures? Yeah, man. The best place to reach me is I'm on um, a lot of social media platforms uh, pretty um, regularly, like basically daily on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Um, for Twitter and Instagram, I'm just at Mike Wardian. That's M-I-K-E-W-A-R-D like dog, I-A-N like Nancy. Uh, and then it's Michael Wardian on Facebook. Um, so yeah, if you want to drop me a line or you have a question or, uh, something didn't make sense, just, um, shoot me a, a DM or, uh, instant message and I'd be happy to get back to everybody. And, uh, I'm also, you know, I have a website. It's just Michael Wardian or Mike Wardian, I think MikeWardian.com. Um, but yeah, if you just put it into any search engine, you should be able to find me. Fantastic. Thank you. He is very accessible. I DM'd him on Instagram. He got back to me. Here we are doing an episode. Fantastic. Yeah, man. I, it, was, it was really fun, man. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Remember to check out the pod on social media as well. We are on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you have comments or clips you want to share, you can send it to me at johnfreakinmuir at gmail.com. As we wrap things up today, I want to include a new feature we'll be doing on every episode, we're going to, and we're going to call this Adventure Media Recommendation. Michael, I'm looking to you to give our listeners your recommendation for a book, a movie, a documentary, a website, or a YouTube channel that will keep them connected to outdoor adventuring. What do you have for us? Ooh. Um, it's a shameless plug, but, uh, I, as you mentioned, I'm on the cover of outside magazine. So like, um, go check that one out. Um, I'd say I, I really love, um, Instagram, I think is, is a great resource for that. Um, like just seeing what other people are doing. Um, it is, it's another shameless plug, but, um, Spartan is going to be putting out a series. It's actually, where I got injured was uh, the Spartan games that's coming out, I think on December 2nd. Um, so yeah, if, if people want to check that out and I think that's going to be on YouTube and Instagram and everywhere. Um, 
I'd say for um, if if they don't have there's a um, oh man what's the app it's a really good app hold on I just used it for the self-supported uh, crossing of Shannon Shenandoah and it was something that I hadn't heard of before hold on I'm trying to find it um. Um, oh man, what was, oh, it's not Kahoot. Um, oh, it's Gut Hook. Have you ever heard of this one? I'm sure your listeners probably have, but it's an app called Gut Hook, G-U-T-H-O-O-K. And it's probably one of the best mapping features I've seen out there. Uh, and you can download the map where you are and it'll show you like where water sources are. It shows you like where you are. It works offline so it doesn't kill your battery. Um, so that's probably one of the best apps I've seen lately. And then, you know, I'm at like a Strava, I'm on Strava too. So if people want to follow me there, but like, I feel like that's a really good app to keep you motivated and, and really get you out the door. Fantastic. Thank you so much. That's some good information right there. And then you said like other weird random hobbies, like if any of your people want to play me in chess, like I'm super into chess, like not even like, because of Queen's Gambit, but like I, one of my goals in life is to become a grandmaster. It's been like something I've been working towards. I started playing in tournaments for the first time about a year ago. So like one of those like things like seize the day, like you keep talking about it. Why don't you just actually end up doing it? So I'm still getting my butt kicked by like eight year olds dressed in like night costumes, but um, I, uh, I love it. And I'm on chess.com and Lee Chess uh, at Michael Wardian. So M-I-C-H-A-E-L-W-A-R-D-I-A-N. So uh, if anyone wants to play me, I'm down to, um, to get a match on. Mike, you are a true Renaissance man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll see. Like I don't play an instrument yet, but I did t- take up juggling about a week ago. So like I'm, uh, I'm still not at a flash yet, but I'm getting closer. All right. Well, that is a wrap from the John freaking Muir studio. Any final thoughts, Michael? Yeah, man, just uh, stay safe and um, go get that adventure, man. Have fun out there. Fantastic. Thank you for tuning in. Always remember the trail is the trail. It doesn't care if you want to go downhill. It doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite. It doesn't care if you're on loop one of the Barclays and you're sitting in a cave trying to avoid hypothermia. The trail is the trail. Embrace the suck. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! oh. Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Oh, it's fun.
time to go like just full-blown redneck on these fish. This is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here. From the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters, enjoy the best fishing Panama City Beach has to offer during Chasing the Sun. Sundays at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.